So now they're in the design business. They're they're like Kanye. Hey, why don't you why don't you hire me? I'm a genius designer. I'm gonna make your shoes. And then they hire you, and he becomes a Nazi. I recorded a segment on effective altruism before FTX collapsed, but I wanted to add a couple of things before you listen to it. Nothing I'm going to say now changes the conclusion of that segment, which will follow this, but I did want to contextualize it. Effective altruism, which is what Sam Bankman-Fried supposedly was, which is giving to causes that have a measurable impact, it resides in a larger context of philanthropy. And I did a, an extensive thing on philanthropy on an episode called uh, World Without Billionaires. It really is one of my favorite episodes. You should check it out if you get a chance. A couple of points that I made there. I have serious problems with philanthropy as it's practiced today. The biggest are, it really doesn't achieve what it says on the label. The first thing it actually does is it's a tax write-off. That is the main purpose of it. And it's kind of a sinister one. I just saw a headline today. Elon Musk's $5.7 billion mystery gift went to his own charity. And people online were all in arms because, you know, now Elon is a magnet for hate because he's been, he's been trolling on Twitter since buying it. And the reality is he's doing exactly what every single billionaire charity now does. They're all scams. And I'll read this from a Washington Post article. In December 2017, Google co-founder Larry Page made what appeared to be generous donations to two charities. To one charity, according to tax records, he gave $100 million in cash and stock. To the other he gave $80 million in cash. Two and a half years later, it's unclear if any of that money funded any charitable works or if it's all sitting in accounts mostly controlled by Page, collecting interest and earning investment income. That's because the organization's on the receiving end of Page's donations, were not working charities such as the American Red Cross or United Way, but donor-advised funds a controversial and booming form of philanthropy attracting increasing scrutiny and criticism amid the coronavirus pandemic as charities face a historic crisis. Known in the industry as DAFs, D-A-F-S, and criticized by some insiders as zombie philanthropy, the money and assets in donor-advised funds are intended to go to charity someday, but there are no payout requirements. And money can sit in a donor-advised fund for decades. This is exactly what Zuck is doing. Same thing uh, Gates is doing. They're all these self-directed slush funds. And they're tax write-offs. That's the first problem I have with philanthropy. The other is even when the money does get to the charity, a lot of times it's not very effective. And if you look at, uh, I think it was Charity Navigator or a couple of them, they show what percentage uh, goes to administrative expenses versus to the actual cause. And some of these are obscenely bad. And they've even found ways to hide what the bundling percentage is, which is basically a bunch of people go out and they uh, collect 
donations to give to the charity, but they take a huge cut, huge, sometimes as high as 80%. So it is wildly inefficient, wildly ineffective. It, it just doesn't work. And Sam Bankman Freed was involved in plenty of these. One of the charities he donated to was using the word charity loosely called GAP, Guarding Against Pandemics, which is basically a, a total money-grubbing grift to get money from governments. And listen to what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to fund the manufacturing of therapeutics and vaccines before an outbreak occurred. Before an outbreak occurs, how do you know what the vaccine's gonna need to be? How do you know what the disease is? How do you know what the symptoms, how do you know anything? You can't manufacture anything, zero, before the <laughs> pandemic actually starts. Also, they were supposed to uh, pay for pandemic-proof buildings, which, you know, we could debate whether that's a good investment and, and why a third party needs to do that and not the owners of the buildings and the companies. And testing everyone as frequently as possible. Testing for what? Why would I give you money to sit on because there's nothing to test for until that next pandemic arrives? How do we know what uh, we're going to be testing for? And making masks much more comfortable. <laughs> Was there other one? <laughs> so now they're in the design business. They're, they're like Kanye. Hey, why don't, you, why don't you hire me? I'm a genius designer. I'm going to make your shoes. And then they hire you and he becomes a Nazi. <laughs> It's really insane. It's really bad. The biggest problem I have, even bigger than the fact that nothing actually goes to, to charity and it's all bullshit, is it's a sinister form of PR. That's the part that bothers me, this reputation laundering part of it. I think it's more sinister than the idea of giving money to something that it, it doesn't actually help. Let's take Bill Gates, for example. The man was a shark. The guy was a shrewd businessman. He took a lot of patents from a lot of companies. He got sued because he was bullying a lot of companies out of business. The EU sued Microsoft several times uh, because they were monopolizing the browser market. Anyway, Bill Gates was a shark. And he also was very, very close to Jeffrey Epstein. And he's lied about it so many times. Here's Melinda Gates talking to Gail King from CBS News about Bill's relationship with Epstein. You know, it was also widely reported that Bill had a, a friendship or business or some kind of contact with Jeffrey Epstein and that you were not, uh, that that was very upsetting to you. Did that play a role in the, in the divorce at all in this process? Yeah, as I said, it's not one thing. It was many things. But I did not like uh, that he'd had meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, no. Mm -hmm. And you made that clear to him? I made that clear to him. I also met Jeffrey Epstein exactly one time. Did you? Yes, because I wanted to see who this man was. And um, I regretted it from the second I stepped in the door. He was abhorrent. He was evil personified. I had nightmares about it afterwards. So, you know, my heart breaks for these young women because that's how I felt. And here I'm an older woman. My God, I feel terrible for those young women. It's awful. You had a number of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, who, when you met him 10 years ago, he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from minors. What did you know about him when you were meeting with him, as you've said yourself, in the hopes of raising money? Uh, you know, I had dinners with him. Uh, I 
regret doing that. He had relationships with uh, people he said, you know, would give to Global Health, which is a uh, interest I have, you know, not nearly enough philanthropy goes in that direction. Uh, you know, those meetings were, were a mistake. They didn't result in uh, what he purported and I cut them off. You know, that goes back a long time ago now. Uh, there's, you know, so there's nothing new on that. It was reported that you continue to meet with him over several years um, and that, in other words, a number of meetings. Um, what did you do when you found out about his background? Well, and, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. Is there a lesson for you, for anyone else looking, looking at this? Well, he's dead, so, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Uh, and, you know, the, you know I'm, I'm very proud of what we've done in philanthropy, very proud of the work of the foundation. Uh, you know, I, that's, that's what I get up every day and focus on. He's like, well, he's dead. <laughs> uh, spoken like a man who just won the lottery. That's a guy who I'm sure cares about a lot of these issues that he's involved with. Otherwise, he wouldn't be spending his time on it. I don't think that part is fake. And he's maybe the best example of effective altruism because he is actually managing this thing, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, day to day. Uh, he's making sure that money goes to something useful. And a lot of people claim, well, he's also profiteering off these patents and he didn't allow these patents to be public for the coronavirus pandemic. You can make your own mind up on that. But at the end of the day, his charity work goes a long way towards erasing the dark history he may have. The other example I want to give is Donald Sterling. So Donald Sterling was the disgraced basketball owner who was recorded by his ex-lover. He was telling her not to hang out with black guys. He doesn't care if uh, she has sex with them. Just don't hang out with them and don't bring them to the games. That guy got booted out of the NBA. He had to sell his team. And what's funny about it is he's also an NAACP award winner the Lifetime Achievement Award from the NAACP, the National Association of Colored People. How did that happen? Well, he gave a shitload of money. That's how it happened. And the head of the LA NAACP had to resign over the controversy. That's what happens. You try to launder your reputation with money. And a lot of philanthropy amounts to that. Jeff Bezos just announced he's giving Dolly Parton $100 million. And Dolly is super charitable. She does a lot of great things. And you can't begrudge Dolly getting money to do good things. Like, how, how can you be mad at that? But a big reason might also be to take a guy who's very controversial, very rich, and deflect some of the attention, some of the negative attention of whatever goes on at Amazon or whatever ills that uh, people might blame them for and direct it to his good works to Dolly Parton, who has enough cachet and goodwill that he hopes it rubs off on him. 
Same thing with Sam Bankman-Fried. He has been touting all his uh, effective altruism. He wants Tom Brady's goodwill and wonderful juices to drip down on him because God knows Sam's not spending any time at the gym. Philanthropy is a front. Philanthropy ultimately runs on what people want to believe about themselves, whether it's the wealthy person who probably had to do some unsavory things to get to where they are and may have gotten blamed for other things that they didn't do. They want to be thought of as good. They want to think of themselves as good. So that drives philanthropy. But just giving isn't enough. Announcing the giving also helps. And so do all of the galas. Every single one of these big charities throw these huge galas. I've been to a few of them. And I'm like, how are they paying for all this stuff? Someone's paying. Well, yeah, all that money that's been donated is being used to puff up the egos of the people who gave. Because without the show, there's no dough. And even the elites want to be affiliated with this stuff. So when you see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wearing her tax the rich dress. Yeah, she's wearing the dress not to go for a jog <laughs> randomly. She's wearing the dress to the Met Gala where all of the people are the elites, all the most educated, cultural, uh, social uh, media elites. She, at the end of the day, wants to be there. She wants to rub elbows with every single one of them, but she can't rationalize just showing up like a regular person. So she has to show up under the pretense of protesting the thing. The whole thing is a show. And every single person there, they're all feeding off each other. So the media people, they feel good about themselves because now they're taking pictures of uh, Ocasio-Cortez. We're going to help her spread this message. Look at her protesting because they want to feel good that they're doing something good. And she wants to feel good because she's there rubbing elbows with all these people. So you see how this all works? It's a self-feeding system. Everyone wants to be elite and no one cares about what the data shows. No one's looking at the efficiency of donations, the effectiveness, the magnitude, what they're able and not able to do. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Maybe good for a press release. What really gets attention is the cult of personality, the status that's stapled to philanthropy. There's a really interesting article in the Washington Post about Effective altruism and long-termism. I know this, <laughs> this is a very big terms. So let me break it down. So this guy, William McCaskill, came up with this concept of effective altruism in the, uh, I think it was late 2000s. It's the idea of doing good better. And what that amounted to in the past was uh, promoting high-impact basic needs interventions in global health, poverty, such as distributing mosquito netting in the developing world. This was different uh, than historical philanthropy, which is giving to the school you graduated from or your favorite museum. So this is a higher yield impact on your money. And you could say that a big practitioner of this is Bill Gates, also the Mark Zuckerberg Foundation. A lot of these tech entrepreneurs and, and billionaires, they are saying, look, the most effective use of our money is to give practical support. But 
this logic has evolved to something called long-termism. And in this book, What We Owe the Future, McCaskill writes, positively influencing the future is a key moral priority of our time. And what that means is very interesting. It says that we should err on the side of helping the multitudes of people who will exist in the future, which is a way bigger number than the people on earth today or that ever existed in the past. It's saying, hey, prioritize these theoretical future humans above these real <laughs> starving, <laughs> pathetic ones here today, the, the sick, the, the poor, the hungry. And, you know, there's something very logical and dark about this all at the same time. So one criticism that uh, this author wrote about, her name is, I should give you the name. Her name is uh, Christina Emba. In practice, this looks similar to a shift towards preventing existential threats to humanity as the most valuable philanthropic cause. The future population's greatest threats are things like a rogue superintelligent AI, a nuclear catastrophe, or an unexpectedly virulent pathogen. And there is a heavy emphasis on tech-driven research and solutions. This is her saying this. Conveniently, focusing on the future means that long-termists don't have to dirty their hands by dealing with actual living humans in need or implicate themselves by critiquing the morally questionable systems that have allowed them to thrive. A not-yet-extant population, basically people don't exist, can't complain or criticize or interfere, which makes the future a much more pleasant sandbox in which to pursue your interests, be they AI or bioengineering, than an existing community that might push back or try to steer things for itself. It's true, like you're dealing with future avatars, not actual humans. To be even more cynical, long-termism seems tailor-made to allow tech, finance, and philanthropy elites to indulge their anti-humanistic tendencies while patting themselves on the back for their intelligence and superior IQs. The future becomes a clean slate onto which long-termists can project their moral certitude and pursue their techno-utopian fantasies while flattering themselves that they are still doing good. I don't know how fair this criticism is. I want to take a, a balanced approach here. There are valid counter arguments. So I, I'll come up with three right now, but there are probably others. First is, let's say you did create massive value. You created Amazon. A lot of people are members. They love getting their stuff in a, a day or two. And it's gotten you tons of wealth. Why shouldn't you be able to work on whatever projects you want? Who's confident enough to say that Musk and Bezos and Gates are wrong about the future? And who's to say they're going to do a worse job at identifying priorities and investing in solutions than people in government today? Don't we also need some forward thinkers working on some future problems as well as problems of today? And even if you don't believe billionaires should exist. You'd have a hard time making a good case that the people in charge today, in charge of governments, have done a great job at allocating and managing resources and solving our problems. 
and that they are somehow better qualified at deploying those resources. So let's confiscate all of the assets, all the capabilities of these billionaires, hand this to our uh, politicians, uh, whether it's in the US, UK, or any developed country, or even developing country for that matter, and say, hey, you guys do it. You don't think there's going to be a ton of waste? You don't think there's going to be a ton of misallocation? Look at how huge our military budget is relative to everything else. We're making tanks we don't need. The idea that these billionaires are going to do a worse job than the people who have been doing a horrible job is a very tough argument to make even if you think billionaires shouldn't exist. Now, it shouldn't exist, I don't know. Do you confiscate their money? Do you nuke their homes? I don't know what your plan is, but whatever it is, uh, I don't think you are going to get the outcome you want. And where I net out on this is we need solver diversification. Because in the grand scheme of things, if you look at even all of the assets of all of the billionaires in the U.S., it is a drop in the bucket compared to what we spend in a year on our annual budget. We spend trillions of dollars. We have, a, I don't know, four and a half trillion dollar budget in the U.S. So what the billionaires spend is a fraction of that. So if they're focused on some of these long-term problems, we need to look at it the same way we look at portfolio diversification. You put some of your money in short-term savings, but then you might buy some sure thing kind of stocks. You'll buy Apple and Amazon and all the companies <laughs> that produce the oligarchs in the first place. But you buy those companies because you know that they're going to uh, pay a dividend, they're going to grow at a steady rate, and you're not going to go to zero and lose all your money. But Good portfolio theory also says, hey, you might want to put a little bit into startups, a little bit into high growth companies, because you want to have that extra upside potential, maybe emerging markets, things that can get you a, a higher yield and maybe uh, buffer your retirement a little bit better. So I view these investors and long-termism in general as Solver diversification. It's a way of us saying, we're going to focus on poverty. We're going to focus on clean water. We're going to focus on uh, homelessness and all these things that plague people on earth today. But it's okay if some fraction of capital goes to some of these long-term problems like AI. Now, an argument could be made, and I've certainly made this argument, that they might be making the problems worse. Or in the case of AI, maybe developing things that ultimately lead to our demise. That's not for me to say, and it's very hard to judge from where we are today. But I would say it's nice to have a little diversity. We love diversity and everything else. Why not in solving problems? And my biggest concerns aren't so much in terms of billionaires or where they spend their money. My biggest concerns are the distortions that wealth and the wealthy can have because of the access they have, because of the things they can do and how politicians rely on them for raising funds. That is a much bigger risk. So creating some separation of business and state is really important. The other thing is just this general waning of competence among our leaders to solve both short and long-term problems. I have zero confidence in these people to begin with. Uh, Republican, Democrat, whatever, you know, Tory, <laughs> conservative, whatever your, your country's uh, leaders are. It's a, a sad state of affairs. The kinds of people that are being attracted to politics are 
a mess. They are mutants and they're doing a horrible job. So the idea that we could just hand them more billions to solve our problems is kind of crazy given their track record. And the third thing is the distrust in these elites, in government leaders, in our institutions that results from these failures. Those are my biggest concerns, not so much long-termism. I, I view that, at least at this point, as diversification. Now, if we plowed all the money we were going to spend on, you know, on feeding the poor or, I don't know, school lunches, and we said, hey, we're going to take all that money and we're going to buy a really cool AI robot and experiment with it, that might be a problem. But as long as we have a portfolio perspective, it's not the worst thing. And what's funny is this whole thing indirectly reminded me of this very famous clip of Malcolm X, where he talks about tokenism. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football, and the white liberals control this ball through tricks or tokenism false promises of integration and civil rights. In this game of deceiving and using the American Negro, the white liberals have complete cooperation of the Negro civil rights leader who sell our people out for a few crumbs of token recognition, token gains, token progress. In a way, a lot of these charities are token gestures by people who want to be celebrated for their goodness, even if they're not that good. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with others. Tell a friend. And please support the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture. And don't forget, if you can't support on the Patreon, at the very least, give the show a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps. And subscribe on YouTube. These episodes are all available on video. And that's it. I'm Steve Factor. See you next time on The McFuture. Future.